When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Something You Should Know, why do people kiss under the mistletoe, and since when? Then, compassion, gratitude, and pride are keys to your success, yet pride has been called a sin. You have to have some pride and take pride in what you're doing because that is what will give you the boost to persevere. If you have no pride, no sense of pride, if you believe that other people are always better than you, it basically puts up roadblocks to you trying to work hard and develop those skills in the first place. Also, some great Christmas gift ideas for the hard to shop for and how to better use online medical information to improve your health. Let's say you had a discomfort in your back, and then you start reading stuff online, you're like, well, if you have back pain and chest pain, and you start thinking, wait a second, I might have had that twinge in my chest too the other day. And you can actually talk yourself into whatever scary thing you're reading about. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, it's time for Something You Should Know, and now with Thanksgiving out of the way, people are getting into the Christmas spirit and decorating for Christmas, and amongst those decorations might be some mistletoe. You know, mistletoe wasn't always for kissing. It all started a long time ago with the Scandinavians. They considered mistletoe to be a plant of peace. If enemies happened to pass under the plant, they had to lay down their arms and call a truce, at least until the next day. Gradually, over the years, the custom gave way to the kissing tradition. The earliest written record of kissing under the mistletoe as a Christmas tradition was cited in Time magazine. 
Historian Mark Forsyth, author of A Christmas Cornucopia, doesn't know why kissing under the mistletoe started, but he does know that the tradition began between 1720 and 1784 in England. In the U.S., the Christmas mistletoe tradition was introduced by writer Washington Irving. His book, titled The Sketchbook, published in 1820, was a bestseller in its time. Irving had returned from England and was smitten by this strange and unique Christmas tradition that he'd seen in Europe. In his book, he explains that mistletoe is to be hung up in the kitchen, and young men have the privilege of kissing the girls under it. But they must pluck a berry off each time. When the berries are gone, the kiss fest is over. And that is something you should know. Pride, gratitude, and compassion, as it turns out, are feelings that can be very powerful to help motivate you, help you succeed, and develop strong, positive relationships with others. Still, there is some confusion about pride, gratitude, and compassion. After all, pride has been called a sin. In fact, it's been called the sin from which all others arise. But there is more than one kind of pride, and there are ways to use the feelings of pride, gratitude, and compassion in a very positive, constructive, even profitable way, according to David DeSteno. He is professor of psychology at Northeastern University and author of a book called Emotional Success. And he also has a really interesting TED Talk about pride that you can see on YouTube. Hi, David. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, thanks for having me on. So, pride, gratitude, and compassion. Let's start with pride because, as I mentioned, it's sometimes called a sin. So, how do you how do you look at pride? Is pride an emotion, would you say? Yeah, it is an emotion, but it's got a little bit of a bad rap, as, as you're kind of saying, because I think we tend to conflate the idea of, of pride with being, with being arrogant or having too much hubris or being self-important. But it is a, a distinct emotion, and it's that emotion we feel when we believe our abilities or our performance uh, is superior and is being acknowledged. You see it develop initially with children when they do something and they'll look to mom and dad for either approval, like, yeah, that's very good, I'm proud of you, or disapproval, like, no, you shouldn't do that. But it is definitely an emotion that serves the purpose of, of making us want to keep developing skills and abilities that are valuable. Because it, it feels good, right? I mean, pride doesn't, when you feel pride, don't you feel pretty good about yourself? Yeah, it's a very rewarding emotion. In fact, it's, it's because it feels so good that it kind of pushes us or nudges us along to do things that are difficult. You know, if you're an athlete, it's it's what's going to make you get up at maybe four in the morning to go to practice. If you're working on a project you're really proud of, it's what will keep you going working late into the evening, even though the actual practicing or working itself doesn't feel very good in, in, in the moment. So pride feels really good. The problems come when that when that feeling of pride is, is miscalibrated to, to what your abilities actually are. So what does that look like? In psychology, we typically talk about two types of pride, uh, which are basically authentic pride, which is when you feel pride for skills you actually have, if you're a wonderful musician, if, you've, if you're a great athlete, even if you're somebody who's just learning, let's say a new artistic skill or, or a student performing well on a test, if your performance or your ability is actually viewed as, as good objectively, 
people around are, are, are impressed by that. And that's an authentic experience of pride. Where it becomes problematic is you still feel that same sense of pride, like you're really good and valued, but uh, your, your views of your own abilities don't match, <laughs> don't match reality. Um, so you start assuming just because you're good at one thing, you're, you're good at everything. And that's where people look at you. And when there's a mismatch between your ability and your expression of, of pride, that can, that's where kind of the, the saying pride goeth before the fall comes from. Uh, that can lead people to think you're arrogant. And uh, that usually puts a dent in, in how other people view us. Well, but how big a problem is this? I mean, do a lot of people have this sense of false pride? It's a good question. I don't know the numbers. I don't think anyone does on what percentage of people have this, but you can clearly see it. Uh, You know, the easiest way to see it is is look at politicians. You will often see this uh, expressed in lots of ways, but I'm sure we all know people in our offices or in our classrooms who have a a self-important view of their own abilities that that doesn't match with everything. And, you know, it's important that we we view our abilities always a little critically, right? That is, just because I'm good at something doesn't mean that I'm good at everything. And I should think about that and carefully look at that rather than just make the assumption that, hey, everybody likes me, I must know what I'm doing. I know people, though, who, it, from my opinion, maybe aren't as great as they clearly think they are, but there's something about that exuding of confidence that is a little bit contagious. I guess it's kind of the fake it till you make it, but in other words, if you act like you're good at something and you're pretty good at it, maybe not as good as you think you are, it still comes off okay, yeah, it does. And, you know, this is the thing that sometimes surprises people. Um, we tend to think of pride as, as you know, the seventh sin, actually. If, if you look at Christian theology, not only is pride one of the seventh sins, but it's the seventh and most deadly. But in reality, it actually is kind of attractive for the reasons you're saying. So we do experiments in our lab where we'll uh, take somebody, give them false information based on, you know, tests that we give them. Um, and say they, they have a really wonderful ability at problem solving. And we'll then put them in a group and they will start to kind of be dominant within that group because they believe they've got this ability and they're exuding confidence. And what happens is everybody else in the group views them as a good leader. They see that as attractive. This person is exuding confidence. They must have something. And so we value that because we all want to work with people who are competent and who are good. The problem is, if you if your view of your own abilities gets a little too far from what the objectives are, then people start to look and say uh, you're being a little a little arrogant. So if you have some ability, and maybe you're slightly overestimating that, that's okay. But if you're projecting confidence, and then when time comes to deliver, and you don't have any of that that competence that you're that you're exuding pride in, um, people will not only uh, have their hopes in you dashed, but they'll actively begin to dislike you. It also seems that when you're feeling pride about something you've done, it acts as a motivator to do more of it. And that's why, you know, I I think there is this idea of fake it till you make it, but, and people will cut you some slack and convincing yourself that you're good at something also helps you want to do it more. If you're taking pride, you're not only suggesting to others 
that you have this ability, but you're suggesting to yourself that you do too. And that can give you a nudge to keep working hard. But if it becomes clear that you're really intentionally faking it, think about those instances when we see people try to fake it till they make it, but they don't quite make it because somebody finds out before they get there that, they, that they've overpromised in their abilities. That can be a major career or even friendship ender. My sense, though, is that it's more common a problem that people don't have enough pride than people who have too much. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Because pride is what allows us to take some chances to work harder. So, you know, we do studies in my lab where we we bring people in and we have them do these really difficult problem-solving tests. And then some of them, we will tell them, uh, just randomly choose some of them, you know, your performance is really good. This is very impressive. Uh, And then we can tell how much pride they feel by that. And then they will actually continue to work harder because they feel like they've got some leg up. This is something they can do. They will work harder and longer on these very effortful tasks. And you can see that in athletics. You can see that in working at the office. And so you have to have some pride and take pride in what you're doing because that is what will give you the boost to persevere in the face of difficulties. If you have no pride, no sense of pride, if you believe that you don't have the skills that are necessary or that other people are always better than you, it basically puts up roadblocks to you trying to work hard and develop those skills in the first place. We're talking about the rather interesting and amazing impact of pride, compassion, and gratitude. And we're talking with David DeSteno, a professor at Northeastern University and author of the book, Emotional Success. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, David, you say that feelings of gratitude, compassion, and pride are easier to generate than willpower and self-denial and sheer grit. So can, can you explain what that means? Yeah. So, you know, grit is this personality trait or capacity that allows people to persevere in the face of challenges. And one way that people often do this is by putting their nose to the grindstone and saying, I'm just going to work really hard. And that can work. But what happens is if you're always trying to work hard at something and you're forcing yourself to do it with strength of will, you are going to fail. If you just look at the data on New Year's resolutions, right? There's things that people want to do. By the second week of January, 25% of New Year's resolutions are already broken. By the end of the year, only 8% have been kept. And it's because if you're willing yourself to do something, it's hard to keep up that motivation constantly. 
Now, if you take pride in working at something, if you get that emotional reward, as we said, feeling pride feels good, then you're not fighting. If you're taking pride in something, it makes you want to do it. It feels enjoyable, even though it's difficult in the moment, you're interpreting that effort as as joyful as getting you where you want to be. And so your body and mind aren't in this tension between each other. They're, they're both pushing you to want to persevere. And what we find is that when people are feeling pride, working hard at a, at to get to garner abilities, to hone abilities, isn't viewed as a struggle. It's viewed as something desirable. And if we desire something, it becomes easier to pursue it. Well, take the example, since you talked about New Year's resolutions, of losing weight. And, and as people lose weight, it would seem they would feel a lot of pride that they're actually accomplishing their goal when they step on the scale and they see the number is lower than it used to be. That feels good. However, chocolate cake feels pretty good too. <laughs> and so, it, in other words, it's not, it, 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 just because you're taking pride in your accomplishments doesn't mean you're not going to succumb to temptation. No, that's right. And the point is moment to moment throughout our daily lives, we're feeling different emotions. And the trick with emotions like pride or compassion or gratitude is to realize that you are not at their whim. They don't just come over you. You can curate your own emotional states and use them as tools. So when you're sitting in front of that piece of chocolate cake that someone is offering to you and you don't want to eat it, you're going to have this this desire, oh, it would feel so wonderful to eat this. I would love the taste of it. But if in that moment you can call up the pride that you feel in having lost two pounds the week before, that will give you the patience and strengthen your willpower to not go for it. So it's not that you felt pride this morning when you got on the scale, that's going to help you not eat the cake. It's calling that emotion again to mind so that you feel it in the moment of temptation to fight the craving you have. What about gratitude and compassion? We hear a lot about, you know, you you need to be grateful. You should keep a gratitude diary, uh, you know, be more compassionate. It'll make you happier. What what do you say? Um, I completely agree with those. And so does the science. The reason why is if if you think about what all of these emotions do, pride, gratitude, and compassion, what they're all doing is making you willing to sign of sacrifice something in the moment for greater good down the line. So if I'm grateful, you know, Michael, if, if, if um, you loan me $10 and I don't pay you back, I'm ahead. But if I, if I don't pay you back, you're not going to want to interact with me again in the long run. And so that gratitude, I feel, reminds me to part with that extra money when I have it and, and, and pay you back. Uh, compassion pushes me to be willing to help somebody else who's in pain or in distress, to give them time, money, effort, a shoulder to cry on something that will help them. Pride makes me more willing to accept difficulties in the moment to achieve a goal down the line. And in each case, what those emotions are doing is helping us delay immediate gratification for something that will benefit our future, closer relationships with other people, having people view us as more value partners, whatever it might be. And what the experimental research shows is in each case, those emotions give us feelings of 
patience. They help us not give in to temptations or craving for our own immediate gratification. And so if I'm feeling gratitude, not only is it going to make me want to help other people, even at some cost to myself, it's going to make me also by that patience, more willing to help my own future self by not spending extra money, by not eating a chocolate cake when I shouldn't. And you mentioned grit. We talked a, a bit about grit, but is, is that something people are born with or can you summon it up or what? No, it's not something you're born with, but it, it is kind of a, a stable trait that, that people tend to develop over time. And anytime you are using your willpower to try and reach a goal, that requires you to overcome some type of temptation in the moment, to overeat, to sit on the couch rather than exercise, to go out rather than work on a project or practice your instrument. You're exhibiting grit. The question is, what's the best way to get that grit to persevere? Yes, you can do it through willpower, but that takes a lot of effort and a lot of stress because you're always in a state of tension. You're using your willpower to overcome some desire for immediate gratification. If you cultivate these emotions like gratitude and compassion and pride, they kind of tamp down that emotion. They change what your brain values to make it value what's better for you in the long run. And so you're not fighting to overcome a temptation for immediate gratification. That temptation just kind of melts away. And therefore, you're not in a state of constant stress or battling. Uh, and so grit is important, but I think relying on using emotional tools to support it is a, is a, is a better way to get there. In your TED Talk, you talk about cheating. Talk about cheating. Yeah, cheating is another place where we tend to give into temptation, right? So uh, if I'm going to cheat on an exam or a task, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm getting some immediate benefit. And usually we assume we're not going to get caught because if we get caught, then there's going to be a long-term uh, long cost to it. But still, we know it's wrong. Uh, and in our studies, for example, you know, 100% of people will say it's wrong to cheat. If we give them anonymity, you know, we'll let them flip a coin and say, if you get heads, you get more money than if you get tails and then ask them what they got. And we can tell if they're lying or not. You know, 50% of them will cheat. They think, oh, it's not hurting anyone. I can get more money if I say I got heads. And they do. When we make them feel gratitude, for example, it cuts the rate of cheating in half. And the reason why is these emotions, gratitude, compassion, and pride, push us to uh, overcome immediate desires for immediate gratification. And the reason they do that is to help us form strong relationships in the long run. No one wants to be a friend or a spouse or a coworker of someone who cheats. And so the reason you feel gratitude is to make sure you pay that, you pay the favors back instead of accepting them and then not paying them back. And so you can see how these emotions help us overcome desires for immediate gratification to behave in ways that benefit the greater good. But sometimes that greater good isn't somebody else. Sometimes that greater good is your own future self. And that's why I encourage people to cultivate these emotions on a daily basis, because doing so is kind of like a booster shot for grit or a booster shot for self-control. And yet in the busy day-to-day -day life, it's hard to sit down and go, I need to, I need to cultivate some gratitude and compassion. And yeah. who does that? Well, 
This you, is well, where, you probably do that, but yeah, although you know, not as much as I probably should. But but here's where the genius of of using rituals or habits comes into play. You're right. Who's going to remember? Oh, I should sit down and do gratitude journaling now. Or how do I become more compassionate? Well, um, if you make it a habit daily, every day, to just when you wake up in the morning, think about three things that you're grateful for. Wonderful. If you're a person who practices meditation or mindfulness, we have experimental data showing that that increases people's spontaneous compassion. There's lots of ways that you can do it. Uh, even when you're walking down the impulse aisle of the store on Black Friday, uh, just take a moment and think about what you're grateful for. And the trick, right, is that you don't have to write this out. It doesn't have to be done long form. Um, but the trick is don't think about the same five things that you're grateful for because you're going to get habituated to them. Think about the minor things that happened to you. Did somebody hold the door for you today? Did somebody give you directions? Did somebody let you in on the highway? When we do this in our lab, even these small little minor things of feeling gratitude increase people's self-control in ways that they spend less money, they make more financial decisions to save money for the future, they help other people more, they're more generous, and they're more patient. And so if you work it into your life, even every morning, it will help. We, we have data where we followed people for three weeks and every day we measured how, how grateful they felt. And there was a strong correlation between just how grateful they felt on, across those three weeks and their ability for impulse control. Are there other benefits though to compassion and gratitude and pride and uh, uh, other than impulse control. I mean, what else does it do for you by being compassionate and grateful? Well, here's where you can see the link between impulse control and social relationships. So, you know, there's many of your listeners are probably aware of this um, study done many years ago by the psychologist Walter Michel called the marshmallow test, where he would um, ask, they would put down a marshmallow in front of a preschooler and say, you can have this now, but if you wait till I get back, you can have Two, right? We do this with adults. Here's some money now. Uh, You can either have this money now or you can uh, wait three weeks and we'll give you more. Which would you prefer, right? It's it's basically, if you have little impulse control, you take what you, you want now, you can't wait. What all of this work shows is not only is it better for you financially and academically if you have impulse control, but it's also better for you socially right? People who have better impulse control have stronger interpersonal relationships. They're less lonely. They're viewed by their friends as, as, as more loyal, uh, and they tend just to have more satisfying lives. And so by cultivating these emotions, they're going to nudge you in ways to share with others more, to extend help to others more. All of those things come back and enrich our own lives. And there's data to show that. And so by cultivating these emotions, you're basically building your own character. By helping you have more impulse control, not only are you going to be better at your job or reaching your financial goals, but you're going to act in ways that are more pro-social, more more cementing and strengthening of those social relationships that we all have that sustain us in difficult times. Well, I've never heard anyone discuss these emotions of pride, gratitude, and compassion in the way that you do. And it's really interesting to hear not only how they work, but how powerful they can be in our own development. 
David DeSteno has been my guest. He's a professor of psychology at Northeastern University, and the name of his book is Emotional Success. There's a link to that book in the show notes. And he has a TED Talk about pride that's really interesting, and I'll put a a link to the TED Talk in the show notes as well. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me on, Mike. It's been a fun conversation. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive licensed therapist at Talkspace, You'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines, so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I bet whenever you have a question or a concern about some health or medical problem or some symptom you're having, you head to the internet to see if you can find out what it is and what to do about it or if you should go see the doctor. And there certainly is a lot of information on just about any health-related topic you can imagine online. But some of the information may not be so accurate, some of it seems conflicting with other information, You may see something online that sort of sounds like what you have, but not really what you have. So what you do with all that information you uncover online really matters, according to cardiologist Dr. Kapil Parak, who is author of the book Searching for Health, the smart way to find information online and put it to use. Hi, doctor. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So what's your sense of how people use the internet to get health-related information and what they do with it. What, what's, your, what's your sense of the lay of the land? In terms of overall like uh, search patterns, health-related searches make any, anywhere from 5 to 7% of all internet searches. And if you look at the studies around this, it's hard to quantify exactly how much, but what you find is some percentage of people are actually able to use it effectively 
um, some people have better numeracy or health literacy than others and are able to use that information to advocate for themselves. But many others either get um, misdirected or confused or in a worst case scenario, they sort of end up making a decision that's potentially harmful to them. Do you sense that people use the internet to diagnose themselves as opposed to gather information so maybe they can discuss it with their doctor? Or, or are they using the internet to replace their doctor, to, to self-diagnose? Yeah, my sense is that, it, you know, oftentimes people are actually just trying to make decisions. And, and the decision is often in the frame of what you said, um, which is, do I need to go see a doctor? Is this serious? Do I have to go right now? Do, can I wait a week? Can I try something at home um, till I feel better? Um, you know, what does this involve? And people use um, the internet at all stages of their health journey, not just when they have symptoms. So, you know, there are studies that show that people use the internet before going to the doctors, during the doctor's visit, like um, either in the waiting room or sometimes right even in the in the office, and then after the visit. So not only do people try and make sense of their symptoms, but they also try to make sense of the information that they get at the doctor's office and kind of what their condition means uh, and how to deal with it. Well, I think everyone, everyone has heard the caution that you can't believe everything you see on the internet, and that certainly pertains to health information as well. Do you think that is a big problem, that there is a lot of misinformation on the internet, and that by people having misinformation, that's causing problems? It is a fair statement. I, I think that the challenge is you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So on the, on the one hand, Completely agree. Not everything online is reliable and you can't trust it all for sure. But there is a lot of reliable information online. And I think one of the challenges that is that most, most people don't have the frameworks to understand how to use it. So let's um, take your example of uh, you're searching for a symptom to begin with. So when most people search for things online, they're typically looking for one answer. You need to go to a restaurant for dinner. So you look at different types of cuisine, location, maybe price, but then you end up on one, one place to go, right? Most doctors actually aren't looking for one answer to explain your symptoms. What we work off is something called a differential diagnosis, which is a list of possibilities of what it could be. You came in with the sniffles, most likely you have allergies, but it could be the flu, it could be COVID, and that little list is my differential diagnosis. And the way I then manage this differential diagnosis is to tackle not just the top most likely thing, which could be like allergies, but the most dangerous thing, which would be something like COVID and make sure I test for it. So that's a, just a different framework that physicians use. And by providing these kinds of frameworks, I'm hoping that the book helps people understand how to process that information in a way that's closer to how physicians process the information and, and hopefully empowers them to make health decisions better. You know how I often use the internet, and I bet a, a lot of other people do this, which <laughs> is in contrast to what you just described, which, which is a much better way. And that is, I look for information that sounds right. Oh yeah, that's the thing I've got, or that's the symptom mm -hmm. I have, and that's where I stop. I mean, I look at that and I go, okay, well, there it is. It's right there. So I'm done. I, I, so what, it, what does it say to do? And I do that. And, and I guess yeah. that's a problem. That, that's exactly one of the things we advise, right? So um, one of the key questions we recommend people ask is, what else could it be? 
And that's not just something, you know, to, um, to, to tell people um, like yourself, but actually that's something that medical students are taught. Um, I still remember when I was taught as a resident, you know, I was pretty sure I knew what the diagnosis was and my mentor stopped me for a second. He said, that's great. You've got, you think you've got the diagnosis. Now put that aside and start over and think what else could it be? And then, and then come up with your list of possibilities. There's a term for this, um, which is, it's called closing the diagnostic funnel too early. And it's actually a cause of misdiagnoses in, um, in medicine. And so, you know, this little tool that, um, you know, of asking what else could, could it be, could be useful, not just to doctors, but also to the lay public. Yeah, well, I've heard that advice to use when you go to the doctor, when the doctor said, oh, you, you have a cold, you could mm-hmm. say, yeah, well, what else could it be? And ask him to reconsider, because I, I suspect often in the doctor's office, you know, you guys are in a hurry, you, you got to move to the next patient, and you're going to rush as, just as likely as I am. Absolutely. And that's one of the key things. How do you make use of that doctor's visit effectively? Now, if you come in saying, Doc, I read this online, I'm pretty sure I have this, and I think I need XYZ medicine, um, it's very hard for a clinician to then try and collaborate with you on that because you've sort of got your mind made up on not just what you have but what you need, and they sort of have to spend some time first walking you back of, okay, well, what is it that you have? What are your symptoms? And then finally figuring out what's going on, and that takes actually more time and, and is a relatively inefficient way to do it. Instead, what we recommend is doing some of the doctor's work ahead of time for them. Summarize your symptoms, summarize kind of using the same frameworks that doctors use, and then they can quickly look through that, and that speeds up their time for data gathering, and then let them do their job and process all the information that you've given them and see if they agree with you or not. And if they don't, they'll let you know. And if they do, then that's great. You've helped them, you know, move things along. But I think there's ways, simple ways that we could you know, just change that interaction so that it's much more collaborative. And in the end, you know, everyone wants the patient to get better, including the doctor. So it's it's a win-win all around. So a, lo- a lot of things people look up on the internet, it's not to prepare for a doctor visit because it, it hasn't risen to that level. It's not necessary mm-hmm. to go to the doctor. It's just, I kind of want to know what this thing is on my arm and maybe I should put some goo on it and... I'm not going to go to make a doctor's uh, appointment for it. For one thing, by the time I get an appointment, it'll be gone anyway. So not much point in that. So I just want to know what it is. If you then go to like a a reliable, what's considered reliable, WebMD kind of of website, are you pretty safe? Is that that, that not a bad way to go? I think it's perfectly reasonable. I think what, you know, if you, especially if you stick with the um, sort of more reliable websites, and we sort of list them out as, um, you know, authoritative websites like the CDC or the NIH or um, things like that, but also like hospital websites like Mayo Clinic. Um, and, and, you know, certainly um, uh, places like that, you can take a look. I think once you do and you come up with your list of possibilities, look through that list and see, is this just you know, a pimple that I don't have to worry about? Or is this a, a, a mole, for example, and I have a history of cancer in my family and I should think about, you know, why is this new mole here and actually follow up with your primary care doctor? The other thing that we mentioned is that it isn't just a doctor that can help you, right? So nowadays there are many other options. Um, so many insurance companies, for example, and even doctor's offices have triage lines where you can just speak to a nurse who can walk you through what's going on. 
there's options for a telemedicine visit, um, and and you could have somebody over, you know, a video call talk you through whatever you're dealing with. So I, I think it's one of those things where if if it is likely to be something that's not too serious, and and you want to try and manage it at home, that's fine. I think it's you know make sure you ask yourself what else could it be, what are the red flags in this situation that I should be looking out for based on what I've read, so that if these things happen, then I'll escalate this to the next level. And what about medications? Because now, and I know I've heard other doctors talk about how they're not real thrilled with the idea that a lot of pharmaceutical companies are marketing direct to consumer because then the consumer shows up at the doctor's office and says, well, I saw this ad for this medication. Sounds like it's for me. And it may or may not be, but but as you were talking about earlier, the patient's mind is already made up. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think when I first saw one of these ads, the thing that came to my mind was nobody comes to my office saying, doctor, doctor, the American Heart Association recommends every patient with a heart attack should have an aspirin and I'm not on one, right? And that's the, that's the conversation we should be having and not with some ad you saw on television. Each disease often has a professional society guideline on what the uh, professional recommendations are for that disease. Think of it as a cheat sheet. So if, if you were coaching a little league baseball team and you had access to a document where all the, the uh, major league baseball coaches had put down their best tips and tricks in, in one place on how to you know, coach baseball and you had access to that, think how useful that could be in, you know, as you're trying to help out your own little team. So what happens for each disease is the best minds in the country and sometimes around the world will get together and write down how they think that disease should be treated. And if you skim these documents, you can quickly pick up that these are the main recommendations, um, the top line stuff, as it were. And I think that's the sort of conversation to have with your doctor. You say, look, I, I came across this when reading and in the guidelines, and it seems like it's, it's relevant for me. What do you think? It turns out that if you do studies in the U.S., it, depending on the condition, 20 to 40% of people, for one reason or another, are not on all the guideline-recommended treatments. And so I think this is the sort of thing where being a little proactive can actually result in something that could um, help you manage your disease better. So say that statistic again. Depending on the condition, about 20 to 40% of people are not on guideline-recommended therapies um, for their condition. Why? It's a number of reasons. Sometimes it's um, just error, like human error, forgot to do it. Sometimes it's... um, miscommunication, went to the hospital, stopped this medication, someone forgot to restart it when you were back to normal. Some of it is truly that people have allergies or had side effects, et cetera, because the the research, it's hard to parse everything out. But oftentimes, it's just been overlooked. So I wonder how this plays into all of this. Before the internet, before information was available on the internet, you'd notice something or you'd have a symptom And you'd kind of, you had really no place to go to figure it out without going to the doctor. So you just kind of blew it off and it went away and life went on and, you know, the sun came up the next day and everything was fine. But now that all that information is available, I wonder how many people get all worked up about little things that they probably don't need to because they have the access to the information to see what it could be. There's sort of two extremes um, that we can talk about. So on one end of it is a condition called cyberchondria, which is sort of cyber for internet and 
the chondria coming from hypochondria. And so, you know, if somebody has a tendency to be a hypochondriac and now they have all this information online, they, they definitely can get freaked out by it. Um, we actually used to see this phenomenon in medical students a lot. And as a medical student, you read about all these crazy diseases and then you have a mundane symptom and you get convinced, oh, wait, I read about this disease. Maybe it could be this. And you sort of get all worked up about it. And now, thanks to the internet, many people can experience that. So there's that, certainly that part of it. Um, I think there's also a different aspect to that, though, which is if you just search for, you know, the internet saved my life or something like that, you'll find a lot of stories of people who were, you know, not concerned about a symptom, but happened to look it up online and found that it was a, uh, you know, oftentimes, for example, women heart attacks present differently, or when you get blood clots uh, in the legs, it can go to the lungs, it can be quite dangerous. And people look that up and then realize, wait a second, this this might not be something that I wait for the sun to come up on and, and actually seek help. So you certainly see both ends of the spectrum where the internet does help some people. Um, and we want to increase that. And then, and then where it does cause harm, we want to try and help reduce that. And there's some strategies we've put in to help with that part of it too. And those strategies include things like? One simple thing you could do is just write it down ahead of time. So if you think about symptoms, human memory is not very good. It's, it's malleable in terms of thinking about symptoms. So let's say you had a discomfort in your back and then you start reading stuff online. You're like, well, if you have back pain and chest pain, then you start thinking, wait a second, I might have had that twinge in my chest too the other day. And you can actually talk yourself into whatever um, you know, scary thing you're reading about. So one thing we recommend is just write it down ahead of time before you even start searching and describe it in, in some level of detail. And then you go online and you try and match your description to what you're reading. And if you didn't write it down, it probably wasn't there. And you're trying to like stretch to, to fit whatever you're reading. And that helps create a little bit of a distance between sort of the symptoms you feel and the stuff you're reading so that you can be a little bit more objective about it. What else? We also look at... Um, what we call epidemiology, which is the distribution of disease. So if you are a 40-year-old man, and it turns out that the condition is actually much more prevalent in 70-year-old women, then, you know, it's probably unlikely that you have that condition. So trying to understand not just the pattern of the symptoms, but also the kinds of people that are affected by it could help you sort through whether it's more likely or less that you have it. Are there things on the internet that, to get away from disease and illness, but, but more about health, that you think are, are worthy of people's um, attention that will help them stay healthy, not just treat disease, but uh, are, are there tools, are there things online that, that you think are really good for that? Even more than what you find online, we're seeing an explosion of apps and wearables and um, other services that are helping people stay healthy. We've, you know, we're in the middle of a revolution, I think. We're just learning how these work and how they can help people in their health journeys. But certainly, I'll give you a simple example. Um, the World Health Organization and the American Heart Association all recommend increasing physical activity. And um, the problem is when they when they make these recommendations, some of which are about 700 pages long, the guidelines are so complicated that most people don't have an easy way of understanding what that actually means in daily life. And you can download um, apps that um, actually just track your activity levels. 
and translate these guidelines into you know other metrics that people can understand readily. And I think that's the sort of thing where by taking good science and turning it into something that's super accessible and consumer friendly, we can actually help people stay healthier and prevent disease even before it starts. Well, given that all that medical and health information is available online, it's really good to get some guidelines and some advice on on how to use that information to improve your own health. Dr. Kapil Parak has been my guest. He is a cardiologist and author of the book, Searching for Health, the smart way to find information online and put it to use. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, doctor. Thanks for coming on. Okay, fantastic. Really appreciate you having me. I think everybody has people on their holiday gift list who are hard to shop for. Often they're people that you want to get something nice, but you don't want to spend too much money because you don't know them that well, but still you know them well enough to give them a thoughtful gift. Well, here are a few gift ideas for those people that you might find useful. Pajamas. They can be an unexpected treat, and you don't have to worry too much about size. If you're not sure, bigger is usually better. A car wash. Everybody needs to get their car washed. And a certificate or a gift card for an inside and outside car wash will be really appreciated. Movie tickets. Now that people are headed back into the movie theater, a gift card or some tickets to a movie would be great. And some theaters offer vouchers or gift cards for popcorn, snacks, and drinks as well. Those are a few good ideas, and it's something you should know. Hey, we've been getting a a lot of very nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, and if you haven't left one recently or ever, go ahead. Go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Five stars would be appreciated. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.